I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. This is The Literary Life. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. I've owned books and books and been a bookseller for over 35 years. What you're about to hear are conversations about all things literary, with writers, readers, publishers, old friends, new friends, and anyone who might wander into our store with an interesting story to tell about their connection to books, reading, or writing. These will be informal, over-the-backyard-fence kind of conversations, the kind I and booksellers everywhere have each and every day. Robert Boyers is editor of Salmagundi magazine, professor of English at Skidmore College, and director of the New York State Summer Writers Institute. He's the author of 10 previous books and the editor of a dozen others. He writes often for such magazines as Harper's, The New Republic, The Nation, Yale Review, and Granta. Today he's on The Literary Life because he's just published a book called The Tyranny of Virtue, Identity, the Academy, and the Hunt for Political Heresies. This is what Marilyn Robinson says of the tyranny of virtue. This is a moment in which many robust voices claim attention for groups and causes that have been undervalued historically. A splendid moment for a culture that, at its best, places great value on reform that tends toward justice. In our universities, the debates it encourages have sometimes become vitriolic and judgmental. Robert Boyers has given us a reminder of the complexity of the issues at stake and the urgency of preventing a humane impulse from being overwhelmed by passions unworthy of it. 
Robert, welcome to The Literary Life. Thank you so much. Delighted to be here. And welcome to Miami once again. Oh, yes. A city I love. And The Literary Life brings you to Miami, or allows you to be in Miami, at least for a little bit each year, right? Yes, a full month of wintertime every year for oh, about almost 40 years. So, uh, yes, I, I know Miami well, and I love it. Yeah. No, we love having you here, and it's Thank great you. to to be able to interact, particularly when there's a new book. We, I really enjoyed the reading we had the other night. The oh. dialogue was amazing, and the interaction with the audience was really terrific. That was great. There were some terrific uh, questions, and uh, it was great to have a lot of uh, friends in the audience, but also some new people who I'd never met before. Yeah. So a question, you know, as I was doing a little bit more research for today and reading the book again, is why now? Why this book now? Why Tyranny of Virtue now? Well, you know, um, I've been thinking about, you know, what um, a lot of people refer to as the culture wars uh, for a little over 30 years. Um, I think I've, I've mentioned in a number of, of uh, the places that um, the culture wars really began to take shape in the late 80s um, when um, a lot of public attention was focused on uh, books by a number of right-wing authors uh, like uh, Alan Bloom, uh, for example. Closing of the that, American there Mind. There you go, right. the closing of the American Mind that uh, that drew attention, whatever, whatever you felt about uh, many of the things in that book. I, I, I wrote very un, unfavorable notice of that book when it came out. Um, nevertheless, you knew that he was pointing to something that was real. There had opened up a considerable split uh, in the culture, um, and uh, it was possible at that time to think about it as a split between uh, conservatives and liberals, um, and, uh, and 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 that was legitimate to think of it in those terms. That was in the 80s. That was in the 80s, right? The book came out in, in the late 80s. But then, um, over the course of the last 30 years or so, there's been a complete transformation in the debate. And people like myself um, on the liberal left have come to feel that many of the things that are most troubling to us uh, are things that are being promoted and championed by people in our own left liberal cohort. Um, and that's been especially surprising and troubling to me over these years. And uh, and so I, I, I started writing about those things uh, about 10 years ago. And uh, other people who are regular contributors to my magazine, Salma Gundi, who are also people on the liberal left, and some of them actually considerably to my left, um, were noting many of the same things. Um, and uh, and, and then uh, a few years ago, I just felt that a tipping point uh, had been reached in uh, the colleges and the universities to some degree in the culture, and that I just had to sort of um, call this out and describe it and try to anatomize it and, you know, understand it. Um, and so I, uh, I, I began writing uh, articles for um, some of the leading academic publications, like the Chronicle of Higher Education, which I'd never written for before. Uh, and when I wrote two 
uh, long pieces for the Chronicle, um, which in revised versions are, are chapters of my book, uh, in fact. The volume of mail that came in was so enormous um, that I was encouraged to think now I had to take a leave of absence from my school and just write the book, uh, which is what I did. Um, the um, Many of the letters um, came from uh, college and university provost deans, um, uh, more than a dozen on in for one of the articles from college presidents who basically said, if you think the things that you're describing um, in your own experience at your own campus and at campuses you've been visiting, if you think those things are terrible, I could tell you stories about what's going on uh, at, at my school that you wouldn't believe. And, uh, and so... Um, uh, that was the impetus for for writing this, and um, and of course in in the book I, I tell a lot of stories, as you know, um, some of them right out of my own experience, but some of them from the experience of other people I know well, friends of mine who teach at other schools, uh, from campuses where I'm invited to deliver lectures and so on, and um, and I think I've I've I think I've hit. Uh, a note that suggests that uh, that I'm onto something, and, and of course I've heard from a great many people um, um, who tell me that yes, indeed, what I'm saying resonates with them. What's interesting to me too is reading the book and reading um, your earlier essays. This isn't something that you were um, that you recently came to. Uh, um, you know, this isn't just because of what we call woke culture, in no. a sense. Yeah. This started years and years and years ago. That article that you're talking about, I think you wrote that in, what, 2013 or yes. something? Yes, one of those, and uh, another one in, in 2015. Um, and then even earlier on, way long time ago, you oh, had a... You had a conference of some sort. Yes, uh, we had a conference on the, on the 60s. Right. Uh, we had a conference on the 60s and in which all of the contributors were people on the left. And many of them were talking about the very kinds of issues that I'm sort of describing uh, in my book. And this is quite some time ago. And I'm talking about people on the left um, like... Um, Ellen Willis um, and Benjamin Barber, uh, very smart people um, who were disturbed by um, what was coming out of people in our own cohort. And I think that's, that's something that I've been uh, sort of trying to emphasize very much in my book, you know, that, that those of us who are trying to understand what's been going on are not coming at these things from a conservative or reactionary perspective. Uh, we're, we're people of the left. And yeah, <laughs> this, is a, this is an internal progressive kind of uh, tension that is going on right now between the yeah. uh, the left and other progressives uh, who are maybe a little younger or come from a different perspective. So yeah. but so your 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 book is told it, it's almost a little bit of a memoir actually. Yes, it it's is, told yeah. in stories, anecdotes, you have profiles. So in describing what the tyranny of virtue actually is, can you relay a few illustrative ones sure. of these stories uh, to show people just what you're talking about. Yeah, I'd, I'd be happy to. Um, you know, and of course, uh, in, uh, before I get to an actual story, short story, say, you know, it, it assumes the form sometimes of people um, 
telling themselves that they're protecting, for example, young people, uh, college students, protecting them from discomfort of one sort or another, and therefore um, suggesting that we ought not to teach certain kinds of books, um, and that we ought not to open up in our classrooms uh, certain kinds of topics for discussion, because those things are bound uh, to make uh, young people especially feel uncomfortable. And uh, so that seems to me quite extraordinary, um, because I had thought that people on the left of my generation uh, were involved in sort of trying to uh, eliminate uh, censorship and that sort of thing. We, we wanted books that had been censored to be let out and opened up. Uh, the writers that I've been close to over my lifetime, um, from uh, the South African novelist Nadine Gordimer to the American writer Russell Banks, uh, are people who are astonished um, at this turn in the culture on uh, on on the left, and um, and of course a lot of this has to do with the notion that in in protecting people, um, we are signaling our own virtue. Uh, we are showing to everyone that we are concerned about people's uh, discomfort, their sensitivity, and so on. To what end? To what end? Simply um, in order to affirm that we are among the saved uh, and the good, and that we don't belong to uh, the circle of people who are insensitive and is don't so care that, about is those things. it so things. that we can belong to another tribe or yes. another silo? Yeah, exactly. So one of the stories I tell in the book, as you know, in fact, it's, 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 a, it's a whole chapter somewhat devoted to this. Uh, it's the shortest chapter in the book. Um, uh, has to do with uh, a poster that uh, that was hung on every department door at my college about uh, two years ago, and uh, I was alerted to this by a colleague, and um, and um, we, we looked at it on the department of our own English department uh, door, and then were astonished to find that every single department door in the college had it, and it said. Um, keep Skidmore safe. Skidmore, right, is the name of our college. So we assumed that, obviously, this was there must have been some kind of terrible thing going on at the college that we were unaware of, um, and we wanted to alert students and others to the dangers right around. And then underneath Keep Skidmore Safe, um, the danger was identified, and it was the danger of something called ableist language. And examples were given uh, on the poster of this kind of language. And it included um, expressions like learn to walk in someone else's shoes or stand on your own two feet or don't turn a deaf ear to, um, admonitions of that kind. Um, and these were targeted as um, offensive um, terms, expressions, um, be because obviously um, they might seem offensive to people who are in one way or another disabled, um, to deaf people, uh, to people who had difficulty getting about and, and that sort of thing. Okay, and this is an interesting subject, and of course it wasn't the first time I or my friends uh, had heard of ableist language. Um, it's something that's very much at the center of something called disability studies in the United States, which is a growing academic specialty. There are many you know, books on the subject uh, and have been around for at least 20 years now. And, um, but 
the poster then went on to instruct students to do the following. One, um, immediately upon hearing a, uh, a professor use such language, go to the professor and demand that the professor cease to use language of this kind. Uh, two, if the professor continued um, to use that language or refused to cease and desist, um, the student was told how to bring the professor up on Title IX charges for having created a hostile environment uh, in the classroom. Um, and of course, this would lead to um, disciplinary hearings for the professor and possibility of removing the professor. So as I say in the chapter, and I think it's sort of worth repeating just because it's sort of amusing, um, I was appalled at this because, of course, my sense was, you know, if you want to create, worry about creating a hostile environment, well, this is the way to create a hostile environment, right? You tell students to bring their professors up on charges for saying it's a good idea to stand in your own two feet, um, you know. I, uh, but and then I thought, well, I'm going to write a letter to the faculty member responsible for this uh, poster, and I will give her examples of the way that ableist language is part of the common language we use. And I thought I would take quotations out of Shakespeare's plays or Dickens' novels, you know, classic texts right from, from the canon. Uh, and then I saw in my bookshelf up above uh, a copy of a book uh, that, like other professors teaching freshmen the year before, um, I had been required to teach. All freshmen had to read this book when they entered the college, and it was Ta-Nehisi Coates' book, Between the World and Me. So I just plucked the copy down from the book Shelf. And of course, I had taught it the year before, but I, I hadn't been interested in ableist language in, in the book. And I just sort of opened it at random. I began to rifle through the pages, and I found one ableist expression after another in the book. And I thought, so here we are. Um, and I wrote this in my letter to this, uh, you know, younger faculty member. If we had been successful in recruiting Ta-Nehisi Coates to teach at our college, a dream, right? To imagine getting Coates to teach at little liberal arts upstate New York college. Um, we would be encouraging our students to bring them up on charges and, and get rid of them. Preposterous. And so, what was the whole thing about? I mean, what, what is this? Well, it is again an example of what, what I call virtue signaling. You get people together, faculty members, students and so on, and they talk themselves into thinking of themselves as especially virtuous um, and of taking arms against the absence of a comparable virtue in other persons. So yeah. to be clear, yeah. you don't have a problem with the sensitivity of language, Not at of all. being sensitive no. to other people's how other people experience language. What was what you really took umbrage with, which is so clear, is the idea of setting students off as almost like, you know, informers in a classroom. Exactly. Which is really the which is really the um, the insult. It's that, the insult. It is, and I use the expression, and I in the book, and I mean it. I I, I think we're attempting. I don't know how successful we are. But we're attempting to create a younger generation of people who operate, even if they refuse to think of themselves this way, as a kind of thought police. 
um, who are, you know, charged with rooting out um, one form or another of violation or what is sometimes called microaggression, uh, right? No, no matter how trivial um, and no matter how common, you, you know. You explain that really well, the notion of microaggression. Uh, where where somebody else might just call it an error. An error. <laughs> a mistake. But, a mistake versus a microaggression. Do you want to but before I get there, yeah. what I just want to say is from the other side, when you read um or listen to as I do periodically just to see what's going on in that silo of our of our political discourse, mm. the notion that conservative critics are saying that academia is just filled with liberal professors who are stifling uh, conversation and yeah. any kind of uh, discussion on the right. Yeah. Uh, and they are encouraging their students to also do the very same thing. Absolutely. Which is to, you know, which is to uh, record their teachers and that sort of thing, the mm -hmm. professor. Yeah, and you know, we, again, people of my generation, you know, thought of most of those kinds of efforts, you know, as efforts that you expected to come from people on the right who, who want to eliminate the possibility of teaching certain kinds of books, of opening up certain kinds of discussions, of raising the prospect of, uh, uh, what recognizing um, communist China so we could have relations with? Well, I mean, it's the it kind was, of things that we would call the liberal tradition, the right? Liberal tradition. It was the liberal tradition to allow and foster free speech, yep. no matter where that speech came from. Absolutely, and and to think of um, conflict as a good thing, right? Intellectual conflict debate as a good thing, making people uncomfortable, not gratuitously, but in the service of ideas and in the service of getting to the bottom of an issue. Um, yeah, making people uncomfortable. I, I, when I, when I've all my life, when I've thought about what I wanted to put on the syllabus for my different courses, I thought, oh, will this rouse students up? Would this make them want to? Because I want it to be good. I want the the text right. I'm assigning to be worthy. But I asked myself the question, will this disturb some of the sort of complacent views that my students have? If the answer is yes, I think, well, that's good. They're the kind of books that disturb me, and, I, and that, that's what we want to foment. And now suddenly we have this, this notion that, no, we want what, what the people I'm talking about in my book uh, are demanding uh, safe spaces. It's in some ways. It's would you agree that it's creating a new kind of orthodoxy? Absolutely, I, I agree. Which is what the liberal tradition had always tried to um, to put a crack in, mm -hmm. in one way or another. That we weren't that that professors were not going to just slavishly. Um, adhere to the orthodox tradition. Oh, exactly. You know, I uh, last year, uh, the you know, I've been teaching. I, I've been running the New York State Summer Writers Institute, which I founded uh, thirty-four years ago. And the first person I, I ever hired uh, for that program was Russell Banks. You know, who's a very became subsequently a very close friend of mine. I had never met him when I hired him. Uh, I hired him on the phone. Um, but we were very close friends, and and um, and some years ago he published a Miami book, you know, called "The Lost Memory of Skin," right? Which I take to be one of the 
greatest of his novels. I mean, he's got, I would say, six or seven great novels, and that, I think, is one of them. And uh, in that book, um, I'm not going to go through the whole book, but um, he gets inside the experience um, of persons whom we ordinarily describe as predators. Right. Um, and people who, who think about having sex with children and, and that sort of thing. And, um, and I, at, at the Writers' Institute, uh, summer before last, when Russell spoke, as he does every year, um, uh, at the reception in the evening, uh, a couple of the students, they're graduate students uh, at another program, came up to me and talked to me about how um, distressed they were by the fact that we uh, had um, speaking at the program someone who had written that book. Um, and the sense was that that book shouldn't have been written, that that um, book had, shouldn't have been celebrated and, and sponsored. Um, and again, not, not because there's anything grotesque or disgusting Believe me, I've, I've read and taught that I've book. I've read the book too. You've read it, of yeah, course. So. Uh, but just simply that you just don't want to do that sort of thing. You don't want to sort of um, give us an interesting, intimate, sensitive, intimate view of people like that. That's apt to be very disturbing, particularly to people, readers, who potentially have had experiences of that kind of their own. And therefore, we should not write such books, and we should not read such books, and we should not discuss such books. And it's just... Well, it's a, it, your, your title is very apt. I mean, that is the tyranny of virtue. That is where, you know, it's a it's censorship, or it's not yeah. censorship in the in the in the traditional sense of mm -hmm. a governmental agency causing something not to to be published, but it's um, it's basically trying to limit what one writes or give access to a writer of some sort. Yeah. Um, talk to me a little bit, and I, I brought it up briefly mm. about this whole idea of microaggression, because mm. you talk about that quite a bit. So the idea of microaggression versus a simple mistake that somebody mm -hmm. might make. Yeah, and this is a, you know, this has become an issue, you know, in, in the culture at large, not, not just on colleges and universities. And uh, I think in some way, the book that brought this more than any other to the fore um, is uh, an extraordinarily original and interesting book uh, by uh, the writer Claudia Rankine and uh, her book Citizen. Uh, some people describe it as the sort of the, uh, the, the Bible of microaggression, uh, not that it's written in biblical terms by any means. Um, it's an extremely compelling and interesting book. And in it, um, uh, Claudia Rankine describes a whole range uh, of incidents, um, some of them in a first-person way, some, some of them um, just in a descriptive way. Um, and um, and some of them just seem to me um, and to many other people I know to sort uh, to, to constitute what we're calling a mistake. Uh, people make mistakes. Claudia uh, Rankine um, describes um, in one of the early sections of her book. It contains little mini 
sections, each one built around a kind of an anecdote. Um, and um, in one of them, um, a, a person she describes as one of her closest friends um, for a long time, um, uh, a white woman, um, Claudia Rankin is a black woman, um, calls Claudia by the name of her housekeeper, her black housekeeper. Right? And now Claudia doesn't make too much of this, and, and she says uh, in the book, I never called her on it. You know, She said, but it, it obviously seemed to me that obviously to her, black people are somewhat interchangeable. They sort of look alike, and even if they don't really look alike, they're somewhat interchangeable. And of course, you know, there are all sorts of things, you know, you can draw from an incident, an anecdote. And of course, I have no way of knowing anything about Claudia Rankine's closest friend. What do I know about her closest friend? Um, you know, but I just read this little three-page anecdote. Um, but it seems to me, again, this is not a crime uh, that Claudia commits by doing this. It seems to me you could just as easily say, wow, that was an astonishing mistake. Um, do mistakes always, you know, indicate some deep underlying uh, bias? Um, or might they simply just be a mistake? Um, and of course, my sense is the, that the Claudia Rankine makes much of this as a symptomatic event in her book, in brief, because everything in that book is in brief, you know, they're just short little takes, three pages long or so. Um, the fact that she didn't call her friend on it suggests to me that she knew that. That she knew that 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 why didn't she call her on it? It was her closest friend. She could have called her on it, obviously, if she thought it was really so very serious. Um, but but she didn't call her on it, and she obviously must have thought, well, maybe it doesn't signify anything. It's just a stupid mistake, you know, like all of us make all the time. So, to you, that incident seems like a microaggression, that it was an isolated incident and it might have very well been a mistake. Yeah. I'm talking about the issue with her friend, what she writes about. Fred the friend. It yeah. could have been just a mistake. Yeah. But could it be that if you live a life in which there becomes aggressions that yeah. are not just microaggressions? Sure. You know, for instance, waiting for a cab in New York City oh. and you happen to be black and you're not getting that cab ever. Yep. And that's not just a mistake by the cab driver. Absolutely not. You know what I mean? So yeah. the question is, you know, when does the microaggression need, you need to find the root of where that, where that angst comes from yep. and then have that discussion about the larger issue that's involved with it all. I totally agree, you know. And in fact, I would say that the, um, the example you just gave, for me, ought not to be categorized as a microaggression. Right. For me, that's an aggression. If, if you're a cab driver and you see a, um, a black um, person standing on the corner hailing a cab and you pass the person by, that's not a microaggression. Yeah. That's serious business. And what I'm saying is if, if you're the victim of those kinds of things throughout your life, sure. you know, you become much more sensitized mm -hmm. to what you or, you or 
the two of us might view as a mistake right. and someone else might not view it as a mistake. I totally agree. And, and obviously, you know, what you want in all things, I suppose, is just, you know, the willingness to think, right. to think, and, you know, to sort of try your best and you know, not always succeed, you know, to sort of keep things in proportion. You know, and to keep the conversation going, yeah. as opposed to doing what has become known as cancel culture, uh -huh. or you know that sort of thing, because Absolutely. you happen to make a mistake, and maybe that isn't really who you are. It was just a bit of a, uh, and and we don't need to go into it because I don't know that I know the whole thing, mm -hmm. but there was just something that happened with Stephen King recently about. Oh, yeah about yeah, um, right. some comment that he made on Twitter, but it, it might have been misinterpreted or maybe it wasn't. But all of a sudden, you know, the, 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 the Twitter community was calling him out yeah. and without any real understanding, or maybe they did have an understanding and they, were, and they refused to look at it in terms of what the totality of his views really are about things. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and that's, that's where we get difficult when you know and i i i kind of think and i'm wondering what you think mm. that part of it has to do with our celebrity culture mm -hmm. to some extent in mm -hmm. other words if you can make a big deal about something uh, well just let, let's just look what happened with bernie and elizabeth in terms of mm -hmm. you know sure. uh, elizabeth saying uh, elizabeth warren saying that yeah. bernie said that a woman couldn't become president well yep. we all i assume we know that bernie you know, knowing his politics, that he would not be a opposed to a woman becoming president, not. nor would he think that a woman couldn't, particularly in given what's going. He might have talked about it in general terms. Who really knows? Who knows? Yeah. But it became a huge deal, and so there are people who might want to use the notion of a microaggression or something like that mm -hmm. in order to enter into the realm of our celebrity culture. Yeah. That is just so significant now. It is. It is significant. How many clicks you get. You know, yeah. I know that you're not on Twitter, but that is something that even journalists are now being judged on mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in terms of what their articles uh, uh, attract in terms of uh, uh, internet viewership. And oh readership. yeah, well, and that's and certainly and that's very significant to politicians, uh, people who are fighting for the Democratic nomination to run for president. I mean, you know, it's internet clicks are very important. You know, and and of course, you know, when you think about that that little dust up. There, which which you know, certainly, if you watch the uh, the talking heads uh, after the last debate, you know it was not just a little dust up in their mind. They they made it in some ways the big the big news of the night. Um, there are just so many interesting ways of thinking about that dust up, um, you know, and, and ways which whatever you feel about it, you'd have to think about if you wanted to be a serious person thinking about what just happened. Um, what just happened is <clears throat> that Elizabeth Warren has been slipping in the polls, and Bernie Sanders has been surging in the polls. So, um, an event which let us let us say that Elizabeth Warren is right and she told the truth. I, I have no way of knowing, you know, and neither do you or anybody else. We don't know uh, what happened in that. But let's say that she's right on it. Why did she wait 
um, 13 or 14 months to bring that out. Well, she brought it out because she's slipping in the polls. So if it was a serious thing, and she was deeply concerned and offended by what Bernie said, I'm granting her that she, that it's true, that she said, why didn't she talk about that earlier? Um, she's a serious person. I take her seriously. She's a brilliant woman. Um, why didn't she talk about what Bernie said uh, a year ago, um, six months ago, eight months ago? Um, why did she wait till she was slipping badly in the polls? So, okay, so there's, you, you'd want to ask that question. You'd, you'd want to think about it because if you don't ask that kind of question, well, then you're not, you don't really want to think about the context in, in which um, the accusation was made. Uh, and of course, I, I, I'm, I can't choose sides on this thing because I have no idea. You've been a professor for 50 years, I believe, at this point, More, even though unfortunately, you look like a kid. But you've been a professor for about 50 years, yeah. mostly at Skidmore, if not I've all. I've been at Skidmore 51 years. Wow. And I, I, I was a professor three years before that, so I have actually been a full-time professor so, for 54 years. So yeah. how did we go from a culture in which we are, where, where we started 50 years ago, fighting good fights in terms of trying to change the orthodoxy. How did we turn academic life into the minefield where you have progressives fighting progressives, liberals, you know, liberal lefts fighting other people, professors worried that they're going to be called out mm -hmm. uh, and uh, there's going to be virtue signaling and all of that. Where was the shift, and how did that happen? Well, it's a uh, it's a great question, and of course, and, and one of the reasons it's a great question it's is that in some ways it's impossible to answer. I know, <laughs> I know it is. It's like my next question: like, How are we going to change this? <laughs> yeah, but you know, I mean, in a way, uh, the uh, the liberal universities, so called, and there are many colleges and universities that don't really belong to that category of the liberal university. Um, yeah, there there are many such schools, you know, big, huge state schools and religious institutions that you know that are four year colleges and so on that are that don't belong to what I'm calling the liberal university. And of course, I've been teaching at a little liberal arts college all of these years, and there, what. Um, what conservatives say is more or less entirely true. They say one particular thing that's more or less entirely true. Virtually everybody who teaches at those schools right, is a liberal. Uh, certainly at my school, that's true. There are very few people who are not liberals. Um, and a very substantial proportion, not quite as large a proportion of the student body is liberal as well. And um, and so what does that mean? It means that there is a kind of a consensus about the kinds of big ticket issues that you've referred to. Um, pretty much everybody is on board with the notion that there is um, a problem about inequality in our society. Pretty much everybody is pretty much at these kinds of schools. Um, and again, I'm not just talking about small liberal arts colleges. I'm talking also about Harvard and Yale and Princeton and so on, those kinds of schools, and Berkeley and Stanford and so on. Um, 
and the consensus is that, yeah, um, we still have a problem with race in America. We're all on board with that. We all have a notion that uh, there are things that we need to do about it. Uh, we can't just think about them. We, we need to. So there's a lot of consensus about those big issues that we used to be fighting those fights around uh, uh, before. Civil rights, gay rights, women's rights, you know, all those kinds of things, you know. So, so, where, so where does that leave us? Well, it leaves us with a kind of a, a human problem. How do you differentiate yourself from other people? How do you find a way to declare to yourself, confirm to yourself that you and your friends, your cohort, are the possessors of a virtue that others in your domain do not share? I mean, after all, we're all on board with many of the same uh, thoughts and the same convictions. So what you begin to do is instead of focusing on, for example, let's use the term, instead of focusing on aggressions, which are things that you, we all obviously agree on, let's start to think about microaggressions. Instead of, because after all, there's no one um, on our campus who thinks it's a good idea uh, to call someone a racial epithet, right? To, right? You, you, you can't call me, pardon the expression, a kike, right? That's not allowed, right? You can't use the N-word, right, to speak to your black friend or your black student. Those things that we're all, we're all on board with, those kinds of things. Um, so we begin to have to think about you know, microaggressions. So, I mean, think about the N-word, right? Okay. We all, we're all, we agree, we can't use the N-word. Right? So now we have a, a black writer named Walter Mosley, right? Well-known black writer, and he's not allowed to read out a passage of a book in his class, right, in which the N-word is used. A black writer is not allowed to read out a passage of a book with the N-word. Uh, so now we've shifted from you know those other issues that were really big, genuine issues to these other kinds of things, and we've gotten people um, all riled up and sensitive about what are in many cases trivial matters, and what we've done is to, to create a generation of people who, who really want to turn the institution into a kind of a minefield, because only in that way can they signal their own virtue and find other people inadequate um, in, in all of those ways. My sense is that really that is what's happened. Given what you just said, and given where we are politically today, mm -hmm. and given the enormity of the issues that are facing us, everything from you know climate change to you know to um, to corruption in our own government to uh, voter suppression to <clears throat> so many things that are under attack, why should those of us outside of academia 
really be concerned with any of this? Well, I think we I think we see some of the kinds of virtue signaling I'm describing um, in the larger culture uh, as well. We see it in political debates and discussions uh, where where people are saying things you feel not because they're always. Uh, deeply invested in the issues themselves, but simply because they want their constituency to notice how virtuous they are. And I think that's an important distinction. Um, you know, we, we want, we want people who aspire to represent us in the political realm, um, to speak to issues that are important to all of us, you know, to climate change and inequality and, and those kinds of things. But, um, but when we feel that all they're doing is, as it were, currying favor with their constituency, right, by saying the things that are bound to win them favor, then I think we have a problem in I, the discourse. I, I keep thinking of Neil Postman's book, Amusing Ourselves to Death. Yeah, that's great. And we know we don't want to amuse ourselves to death. We don't. We want serious discourse yeah. in this age of show business, which is his subtitle. It's a, yeah. And yeah, I think that's, that's really what we want. Mm -hmm. And just finally, um, I have to give a nod to Samagundi because you. you have created what I think is one of the most important magazines that we've ever sold here at Books and Books. And... Um, if you can briefly just talk a little bit about the forming of that. Yeah, I mean, I, I was uh, I was a graduate student at New York University, and uh, a friend of mine, very close friend of mine, uh, dragged me with him one afternoon to uh, the cafeteria of the New School for Social Research, where there was, he told me, an old man who likes to sit in the cafeteria and hold forth. He was 57, the old man, 20 years <laughs> younger than I am right now. Uh, and uh, it turned out he was a, a German refugee intellectual named Henry Pachter. Heinz Pachter was his original German name, author of many, many books on many subjects. And uh, anyway, uh, we hit it off. Uh, he liked me. He was a founder of uh, Descent Magazine, Irving Howe's Magazine, which was the first magazine that published my work uh, in the mid 1960s. And um, that great joke by Woody Allen: that, Descent and commentary <laughs> merge, and they call it dysentery. Dysentery, <laughs> a great magazine, <laughs> a great magazine, for which I've never written, but I would love to, you know. And uh, anyway, he. He said, after he got to know me for a little while, he said, you, you've, got to, you've got to start a magazine and I'll help you and so on. I had, I had some money uh, as a, uh, a child singer in Jewish temples. I was a, a very famous boy singer. In, Your father was a cantor. My right? father was a cantor. I sang in a Jewish temple uh, in Brooklyn and I was a soloist. And uh, I come from a, a very poor working class family. And my father, you know, arranged with the choir master in this choir where I sang every Saturday um, to sign me up to sing at um, weddings, bar mitzvahs, and so on. And I did this for eight years. And uh, I, I never had any... Uh, uh, idea about money, and no one ever mentioned anything about money to me. You know, we were a poor family, and and if the thought ever occurred to me, I I would certainly have thought that my parents used it because we were struggling. 
Yeah, you know, we didn't have anything. We didn't have any niceties, you know. And we ate. I mean, we didn't, we had food on the table. You know, we lived in a little apartment in Brooklyn. And, you know, uh, and when I was when I graduated from college at twenty one, uh, my parents gave me almost thirty thousand oh. dollars. And in nineteen sixty three, that was that a was lot a of money. A lot of money. That was a lot of money. It was you know the, I went to the City University of New York because I didn't get a full scholarship to Columbia, so you know, we didn't have money for those kinds of things. You know for and so of course I would have assumed that there was this money. My parents had thought. No, we're just going to give that to him when he graduates from college. And you use that as the foundation I, for the that's magazine? That's it. I started Salma Gundy out of my little- uh, um, What year was that again? In 65, I, I was in graduate student. So who were some of the earliest writers that you-, that you Oh, we had you know all kinds of people. Right? I mean, the poet Robert Lowell was oh, very my. central to you know Harold Bloom, uh, you know- uh, uh, a. Alvarez, very early on, we got uh, George Steiner, who was my graduate school teacher, Irving Howe. And I know Susan Sontag was a Susan very early Susan Sontag was very early involved with the magazine. Jamaica Kincaid. She wasn't. Oh, she wasn't? No, Jamaica wasn't. No, no I didn't meet her till later, uh -huh. but Susan was. Susan was very involved with the magazine, and uh, a lot of the famous people um, who got involved with Salma Gundy uh, I sort of seduced, sorry for that word, uh, by writing articles about them. Uh, so I wrote articles about Susan Sontag and Irving Howe and George Steiner in other magazines, in bigger magazines, and that got us in touch. And Salma Gundy is still going strong? Still, still going strong. strong. Yeah. So you can still find Salma Gundy. Are you online as well now? We are. Yeah, we are. So at salmagundi.org or yeah, net or yeah, yeah. org. It's at Skidmore College. It's at Skidmore. Uh, but if you just Google Salma Gundy, you, you get it and it comes up. And, and yeah, it's, it's an online edition. And, so. and, and Robert, um, this has been just a real pleasure having you on The Literary Life. And you know, knowing that you come to Miami every year, we're just going to have to make this a tradition, I think. I love that idea. Thank you. And I can't wait for your own memoir to come out so I can hear all those stories it's going great. back <laughs> to the 60s as well. But thank you. The name of the book is called The Tyranny of Virtue, uh, Identity, the Academy, and the Hunt for P Political um, Heresies. Yeah, you know, my eyes are going <laughs> <You're> bad. <right. laughs> my glasses are up in my head. And it's a hunt, funny word, heresies. And the hunt right? for political heresies. Yeah. And it's published by Scribner. And uh, thank you again. Thanks so much for having me.